Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Kent Guy, who has written three books on the Qing Empire. Among them is... The Emperor's Treasure for Treasuries, The Qing Governor and the Provinces, and one that is currently being released, The Three Impeachments. And he has also worked as university professor on East Asian Studies at the University of Washington. And of course, as always, to begin to get to know our guests a little bit, how did it come about to study the Qing Empire that we are going to discuss this week? Well, uh, I I often like to say that the field of Qing history chose me. I didn't choose it. Uh, when I was in college, um, I decided that I wanted to major in history, and I picked more or less at random a course in Chinese history to start with. I liked it very much. It was recommended to me. And uh, so I continued uh, studying Chinese history in university. And when I finished, I decided I would like to go to graduate school, but I first had to learn more Chinese. So Mm -hmm. I applied for a fellowship and I said, if I get the fellowship, I will go and learn Chinese. If I don't, I'll figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. And the rest um, is history, as to say. And the rest is history. I got the fellowship. Mm-hmm. And so it was for the next uh, next 40 years. Mm. And of course, let's begin, because Qing history is quite fascinating, as you, as you know. So let's begin with the, the Ming Empire, which was the empire before the Qing. And I wanted to understand, in order to understand how the Qing came to power, what was the state of the current Ming Empire like at their end well, of the flow? Well, I, uh, the Ming Empire, which was founded in 1368, um, after the Ming had overthrown the Mongols, who ruled China for 100 years, uh, the Ming Empire, by the early 17th century, was, uh, was fairly weak. Uh, its its administration was inflexible for for a variety of reasons. Uh, it didn't devote uh, much of its resources to the military. Instead, it proposed to build a wall between itself and its enemies to the north. Uh, the wall didn't work. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it's now called the Great Wall of China, and it didn't keep the uh, Northerners out, so there was an inflexible leadership. Um, 
lack of investment in military resources. And also, recent research has suggested that there was a major uh, climate change uh, throughout the world in the early 17th century in Europe as well as China. And this, uh, in, in an agrarian empire, which the Chinese empire was, uh, a cooling of climate, what happened, can be absolutely devastating uh, because it uh, reduces tax revenues and uh, creates famine and, and creates both epidemic and famine. So the Ming, uh, the Ming was certainly in trouble. Uh, I like to say uh, the Ming wasn't pushed; it fell, and there were a uh, a, a hunter gatherer and trading folk uh, who lived to the northeast of the Ming, in the region that today we call Manchuria. And they had various grievances against the Ming, and they were able to take the Ming capital in April of 1644. Uh, and then for the next, really for the next generation, uh, they were involved in a process of expanding their control of Ming China. Um, it didn't happen it didn't happen overnight. They formed a government in the 1640s, but really it was uh, uh, not until the 1680s that the uh, Qing dynasty uh, controlled all of what had been Ming China. Now, Robert E. Lowe, he argues that it wasn't so. So, uh, the so illness, that yeah. when you ask, why the Qing succeeded. The, the Qing, the leaders of the Qing were Manchus, uh, not ethnically Chinese. And they were like many of the peoples of, of, of uh, um, Northern Asia. They were a people who were organized for war. They were organized into armies uh, in which soldiers and their families were enrolled for life. And so they, the, the Qing were organized for war, and they were simply, I would say, bit, far better organized for war than were the Ming. Now, Robert E. Lowe, he argues that it wasn't certain that the Qing was, would, would become victorious and be the new dynasty of China. So... Do you agree with this that it wasn't necessarily that the Qing was would become the victor of this? Um. No. Well, I uh, um. When you say R Robert Lowe, I think you mean William Rowe. Well, that Rowe, that's it. Yes, yes. I apologize. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. that's it. I think you mean William Rowe. Yeah, that's um, it. Uh, I think it was fairly predictable that the Ming would fall, hmm. but I'm not sure that the that the, the uh, it could be necessarily predicted that the that the Qing would be the victors. Uh, but they were well organized for war, and they were uh, 
prepared to take the capital. But as I say, and I would emphasize, it, it was a process not just of a few years, but really of a generation before mm -hmm. the Qing controlled and before the Qing controlled most of the territory that the Ming had controlled. And it rested on a lot of uh, Chinese collaborators who mm -hmm. found the Qing simply better able to keep the peace uh, than the Ming had been. And also by the 1680s, uh, the, the weather had warmed and life became easier and better. So, so what changed after the Qing government over from the Ming's? Did that, did anyone know this? Did, that, did anything change for the peasants per se? Or I know that coinage did change that minted in the Qing emperors, but uh, did any apart from that, did anything change for rural rural China? Or uh, what? What uh, exactly did change for the Ming? Uh, the, I think the probably for the for the rural for the peasantry. Uh, um, the change in government did not did not bring about a lot of change in their lives, uh, but I, I do think that as the weather warmed, uh, agriculture was more productive. Uh, the peasant lives improved, but that was nothing was not necessarily anything that the Qing did. Uh, that was a that was a product of the of the of the changing environment. Uh, I do think the Qing was probably able, uh, better able, to keep the peace. They deployed their armies uh, uh, throughout China, well, not throughout the north part of China, and and had garrison forces in many of the big cities of North China. But I'm not sure that the peasantry was necessarily the peasant lives were 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 changed in any radical way. So, so let's talk about the Qing government and how the Qing government functions. Okay, um, the the Qing government was an imperial government, and the the Qing adopted um, all of the institutions of the, the Ming, in fact, uh, so that the Qing government, in fact, looked uh, uh, very much like the Ming government, uh, uh, at least in the beginning. There was an emperor, uh, there were six ministries in the capital, the Ministry of uh, War, the Ministry of Justice, the Ministry of Revenue, the Ministry of Personnel, uh, the Ministry of Works or Public Works, and what's I, I, whenever I start to list the six of them, I can never come up with the, the sixth one. Oh, the the Ministry of Ritual. Um, there were these six ministries at the capital, uh, and in the in the countryside, there were um, provinces. Um, their number changed a little bit over time. Uh, well, there were uh, somewhere between 12 and 15 provinces, depending upon when you're talking about. Uh, 
they were organized into uh, uh, larger units. There was a governor general governed two provinces, then a provincial governor. Under the provincial governor were uh, prefects who were functionally defined officials. And under the prefects, uh, ultimately was the district magistrate. The district magistrate was the lowest um, ranked official of the Qing government, and he controlled all the functions of government, um, uh, the, the six functions I mentioned above, at the, at the local level. And he, um, a, a, a county was a fairly large unit, uh, often several tens of thousands or even a hundred thousand people. Uh, so he uh, often governed through uh, local, um, using local or, or based on his relationships with local organizations. Uh, one formulation would be to say that the Qing government was actually a fairly narrow uh, a shell that lay on top of a large and largely self-governing society. Now, in Europe, of course, whenever a new dynasty occurs, and to pick one example, when the Tudors came to rule England, there was always a concern about legitimacy that they wouldn't wasn't a usurper, as they very much were. But was this a concern for Qing China that there were they were usurpers that they had to legitimize their rule? There was absolutely uh, major issues of legitimacy. Uh, not only was the Qing government new, but they were foreign. They were ethnically different. They spoke a different language uh, than the Chinese did. Um, now, so the question is how to make themselves legitimate. And this was a, a very important theme underlying much of, of, of Qing government. And basically, the, the Manchus did it uh, by uh, adopting and patronizing Chinese scholarship and literature as much as they could. And you mentioned my first book, uh, on the, the, which was titled The Emperor's Four Treasuries, um, and it is a, the story of how the Qing set about to collect all the best books in China. And then they wrote a, uh, uh, they collected all the books, made a major uh, catalog of them commenting on uh, all, all these books, which is very useful today. It's uh, five volumes and I can see it on my shelf at the moment. Um, and but and and this this was a gigantic patronage effort that went on for ten years. But uh, I may say the Qing patronage of the Chinese scholarly world was a constant theme of Qing government beginning beginning in the early seventeenth century, and the Qing would argue that. The terms of their argument for their own legitimacy changed slightly over time, but the argument was that 
we are better able to preserve the universal principles of government than, than the Ming were. We, we, they accepted the really the Confucian vision that the classical tradition laid down certain principles of government, and the the Manchus argued, uh, as I say, with slight differences in nuance, um, but that they could implement these classical principles of Chinese government as well or better. Than, than any previous Chinese government, and certainly including the Ming. Now, imperial eunuchs, of course, were very much present in the Qing government as well, uh, all the way up until the end in 1912. So what what was the role of an imperial eunuch? And of course, guiding the imperial harem was one of them, but the, the, what, what else were, were eunuchs okay. in the well, Qing government? Well, first, um, I should Know that the eunuchs were a very powerful uh, force in the Ming dynasty, um, based on their relationship with the emperor. Uh, they set up, they extended their control over a period of several hundred years over many of the institutions of Ming government. Uh, the Qing quite explicitly decided that eunuchs would not play that role in the Qing dynasty. And instead, quite early on, in the at least as early as the 1650s, they decreed that the role of managing the imperial household, which had been the, the eunuch's responsibility to mean, would be carried out by a new institution uh, called the Imperial Household Department, and it would be staffed by Manchus, not by eunuchs. Uh, now, there were still eunuchs around the palace, but many fewer of them uh, than in the Ming, uh, and none that approached the political significance or importance of uh, of of Ming eunuchs, so that it, really on the, on the on the subject of uh, eunuchs, uh, you have to say that the Qing were were um, used eunuchs much less than the Ming did. They were still there, but only performed the kind of routine tasks mm. of maintaining the forbidden city. Um, they didn't, they never acquired the political power that Ming eunuchs had. So, and and the, the big institution of that type, as I say, was the Imperial House, Household Department, and it was staffed by eunuchs, uh, excuse me, staffed by Manchus. Uh, bear in mind that Manchus uh, were enrolled for life in the army, and that also uh, the Manchu society involved uh, bondsmen or slaves, and these. Uh, so the imperial household department very often the actors were uh, um, uh, Manchus or their 
their their bondsmen, their slaves. Hmm. Now let's talk about imperial succession because as and I want to bring up again, I'm going to do a little comparison here because as you know, in the Ottoman Empire, if you want to become um a sultan, you had you would have to kill all your brothers in order to succeed. Was was this kind of the same in Imperial Qing and in Ch Imperial China as well, where you did not want your brothers around if you wanted to become the successor? Um, well, um, I, I would say there was a very uh, distant echo <laughs> of the Ottoman uh, practices in, in, in the Qing, but very distant, and it was overcome fairly soon. Um, the, of course, the the Manchu tradition when they came to power before they were in power, the Manchus had a system of collegial rule where multiple people would serve, not not uh, well, multiple people would occupy the imperial position. When they um, became rulers of China, of course, the Manchus adopted the Chinese system, which is of a single, of a single, of a single ruler whom they called emperor. Um, but the the system of succession was troubled uh, through the first, say, fifty years of, or no, well. 1640 to 1730 for the, for the first 90 years of Ming rule. The first emperor um, in China was in fact an infant and his uncle governed for him as regent. Uh, when the uncle died, the infant briefly was, became emperor in his own right, but then soon died of, of smallpox. So there was another regency uh, which preserved some of the collegial features of Manchu rule. In, in 1661, uh, um, uh, shortly after the first emperor died of smallpox, a second child was enthroned, as I say, but he had the, he had the regency uh, which assisted him for the first 10 years. But this second child, who was known as the Kanshi Emperor, uh, was very, was educated in the Chinese tradition, was uh, an intellectually curious and activist man. Um, he governed quite successfully uh, until uh, seven, uh, 1723. Um, he tried, uh, he, the Chinese advised him to designate a successor. Uh, he did, but then became very dissatisfied with the son whom he designated as a successor. Uh, so he undesignated his son. And for the last 20 years of his reign, uh, there was no designated successor. Um so that in seven, when he died in December of 1722, uh, there was no undesignated successor. But, uh, excuse me, there was no designated successor, I'm sorry. Um, but his 
uh, he had his fourth son, uh, who in a, an article I haven't published, but I'm I'm working on it. Um, his fourth son, who really became his caretaker in his old age, um, probably um, very carefully managed the succession process so that the fourth son became his successor. Um, but there was a great deal of hostility from from many uh, because the Kangxi Emperor had had many sons <laughs> with a uh, and so that there was a there was a great deal of protest over that succession um, and afterwards they began a process which was carried out to the end of the Ming carried out to the end of the Qing rather in which an emperor would designate a successor and and put the name hidden away in a certain place within the palace so that a successor would have been designated, but it would not be known publicly. And in fact, after the um, uh, succession case of 1723, there really were no more disputed successions in the, in the Qing dynasty until the end of the dynasty. So we can say there is a, a distant echo of the Ottoman practice, mm. uh, but only, only, only in the early successions of the Qing. Now, of course, religion as well will play a part in the Qing channel, and they were very much Confucian practitioners. So what, yes. role did, what role did Confucian practice play in Qing China? Well, as I've indicated, uh, the Manchus were very concerned to represent themselves as, if you will, more Confucian than the Chinese. Uh, that is to say, and I, 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 I want to be, be quite careful with that proposition, um, publicly they were quite Confucian. Um, however, they also maintained their Manchu practices. Uh, they maintained their language. Uh, they maintained the banner system, that is, the armies in which all Manchus were enrolled um, for their own people. But in, um, in um, to legitimize their rule over China, um, they uh, expressed fealty uh, to to many and all uh, Confucian traditions. They patronized scholarship. They um, employed uh, scholarly advisors and the like. Now, having said this, I, I, I would also say that with other peoples, um, the, the Manchus did the same thing. <laughs> that is, when they when they uh, took over in Tibet, they pledged fealty to Tibetan traditions, and so they became uh, they were served by Tibetan lamas. Um, so they really were a. Mm -hmm. um, they they faced in multiple directions 
but they certainly did pledge fealty to the to the Confucian traditions. Hmm. Now, of course, trade relations and this will become important in a second as well, as we will see with the West and the, because the West, of course, were very much interested in what China, the wares and place and everything that China yes. had. But of course, China weren't very much interested in what the West had, and they were certainly not interested in their technology. Was this kind of a mistake on China's hand in not adapting the Western technology, which, of course, I mean, we will talk about this in a second, which caused them to lose the open war. But, but, let's, talk, but let's talk about trade relations with the West and well, Europe first. The, here, um, I think that, that there is, um, there are several things to say. Um, yes, the, uh, the the Chinese were a continental-sized empire, and they simply didn't need much in trade. Um, but the reality was, as new research is showing, that there was a significant Sino-Western trade for many centuries before uh, the well, for at least. Of four centuries before the Opium War, uh, research done by Dennis Flynn and others has shown that, in fact, uh, vast amounts of Spanish silver found their way through the Philippines to China from the 15th century into the into the early uh, 19th century. Um, uh, Westerners were buying Chinese goods. They were buying porcelain. They were buying silk. They were buying tea. Um, and in fact, the trade, um, there was a significant trade. Uh, but we need to understand that what what was happening was that the, the, the Chinese were receiving silver, uh, which became an unofficial currency. Um, Whereas the and the and the Europeans were receiving their trade goods, what happened in the nineteenth century then was not so much the beginning of trade with the West, but the moment in which the Westerners acquired the power to change the trade uh, the terms of trade with China. Uh, the, the Westerners were hemorrhaging silver to the Chinese Empire. And wanted to uh, stop that, stop that hemorrhage of this uh, uh, valuable material. So the Westerners had to come up with another good that the Chinese would buy um, uh, instead of demanding silver. Now, before we and go, course, the, I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you there, but before we go into the open trade. I want to ask, what about other Asiatic powers? Did, did China tr trade with people like the Mongols? Sorry, not Mongols, but the, but the Moodles, for example? The way they trade relations between the Moodles the, in India were, and China? Was, uh, trade. Um, there was trade with Southeast Asia. There was a considerable rice trade with Vietnam with with Cambodia uh, and in the Philippines and there were considerable I've just read a 
a, a very interesting new book by Melissa McCartney, uh, which uh, details very significantly the trade and immigration from the Chinese coast to the Philippines, to Vietnamese ports, to Thailand, to Singapore and Cambodia that took place uh, uh, from the middle of the 18th century on. And as I say, there was a, a significant rice trade uh, where Southeast Asian rice was imported to China in, in return for uh, Chinese manufactured goods that went back to went back to Southeast Asia. Now, before we go into the open trade again, I want to talk about the size of China because it's in one because in Qing China it would be closest to to what we see in modern China is today. And I want, but I want to begin with controlling the borders of China and how they how they did because you mentioned Great Wall, of course, but was it still relevant in Qing China and how did control of the borders because it's quite a large, significant, quite large border to control because it's well, was gigantic. Yeah, again, you have to remember that the, the Manchus were people who were organized for war and they um, whereas the Ming had been in uh, had been content to dwell within their wall uh, the, the, the Manchu Qing dynasty actively moved out um, to establish relationships and ultimately uh, domination over much of Mongolia and Tibet. Um, uh, the, there were um, the control of Tibet began quite early uh, as in well uh, some Qing presence in Tibet began as early as the end of the Kangxi reign, and Tibet ultimately became uh, a sort of a protectorate of uh, the Qing dynasty. Uh, during the 18th, well, during the 17th, first in the 1690s, and again in the 1750s uh, and 60s, the Qing sent out uh, conquering armies into Mongolia and incorporated large parts of Mongolia into the Qing Empire. Now, that's not to say that Mongolia or Tibet became, quote, Chinese provinces, end quote. Uh, they were managed by a different organization uh, called in, in which we, we translate called the Court of Colonial Dependencies, the Li Fanyan, and these, um, so that the um, both eastern and western Mongolia and uh, Tibet uh, became a part of the Qing Empire, but if you will, not a part of China. And um, there were efforts to expand the the efforts to expand the. Qing Empire to the south into Vietnam and into Burma were not nearly so successful as the ones to the north. And that's partly because uh, the Qing armies were 
more accustomed to fighting on the plains of Central Asia than they were in the in the uh, jungles and river valleys of Southeast Asia. Um, but the Qing, uh, uh, unlike the Ming, the Qing quite actively uh, sought to expand uh, to the north and to the west. And this has led to a very curious situation in the present era when uh, the when Tibet and Mongolia uh, claimed that they were not a part of China, but they were a part of they were a part of the Qing Empire, but not of China. Uh, on the other hand, the current Chinese government has certainly claimed Mongolia and Tibet as their territory as a part of China. And this sort of historical uh, difference in the way people regarded the relationships here um, is now quite, uh, has now been quite fraught mm-hmm. and quite difficult. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, let's get into the opium trade. So that led into the opium war because, at the, like, like you said a while ago, the English began to find new products that would please that they wanted to trade with the Chinese, and one of these would be opium. And of course, in India at the time, which was a well, great producer of opium and easy to to get to China, the East India Company, of course, would become a massive part in production and sale of the opium. But it would be very quickly banned because the Qing government realized what a bad product this is, but they still kept growing, and of course this would lead into the opium war. So let's talk about East Indian Company and the trade of opium into Ming, sorry, Qing, China. Yeah, well, the the opium trade was always uh, illegal. Uh, um, Although I, I suppose the uh, that prescription was not as as rigidly enforced, but um, what and you say the East India Company raised raised the opium in India. They then sold it to private traders who carried it to China, uh, made their made their sales along the China coast, and took their money, and then. Um, the uh, uh, took their money back to England and and ultimately uh, to Europe. Um, so that really, the the opium traders were a group of often young men uh, who were out to make their stake in Asia, and they often made made the foundation of their fortune in Asia. And then very quickly tried to invest it in legitimate, um, legitimate types of investment in 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 Europe. Um, so the the East India Company it was a very it was a very complicated system. As I say, the East India Company raised the India raised the opium in India, sold it to these traders. These traders then sold it in China. 
then the traitors used the uh, offices of the East India Company to transfer their money back to Europe because no one wants to uh, 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 be uh, on a overseas voyage from China to England with a ship full of silver. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's You're too liable to, to piracy. So they sent their money back through the offices of the East, East India Company and and found, you know, had it deposited in uh, English, English institutions. Uh, a few companies persisted in the opium trade. Uh, the British, uh, obviously, Jardine Matheson and Company, the American Russell and Company, um, but most of the traders were, in fact, these these young men out 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 on out on the make. Now, opium, uh, as I say, the Europeans had to find a good that would create its own market. Um, and what, if you think about it, what better uh, way to create your own market uh, than to sell drugs? Mm. Uh, uh, and uh, much of the drug sales were were actually carried out on the ocean. That is, an opium trader would bring a ship full of opium along the China coast, and his counterpart, Chinese opium trader, would take take his vessels out to meet the western ship, buy the opium, and then. The, the opium trader would take it into China and, and distribute it. Um, and this, this was a, a very successful operation. Now, the, the um, ideological, that is, the, uh, in, the, in the English mind, uh, the opium war was about... Uh, uh, creating institutions of free trade, and you have to be careful, very careful with that, with that justification, uh, because in reality, free trade has existed all, all the way along uh, for several centuries. But the Europeans were in the eighteen forties trying to change the terms of the trade, um, but there were. Mechanisms by with by which China could trade with foreign countries. They were complex mechanisms and different mechanisms that were known in the West. But there were there were such mechanisms before the Opium War. So the image that the Opium Traders or the Opium War opened at China uh, needs to be needs to be. Um, we need to be very suspicious of. Now, I want to men mention this as well, because I, as you know, we talked about it would be banned very quickly, which was a real Qing government realized so bad that it was just killing their people. Yeah. Yeah. It was a bad product. And I don't remember what emperor this was, but he was, there was an emperor who, because he really knew that in England, Queen Victoria had banned opium as well and he wrote to her in the letter 
and I'm not gonna say it word for word because of that, but it would go something along like you banned opium in your country, so you realize how bad it is. So why do you keep selling opium to my people, which you know it will destroy their lives? Exactly. That was probably the the uh, Dao Wang Emperor um, who uh, who uh, dispatched. There were there were two schools of thought about the opium trade in China. Uh, there were those um, there were those who felt that well it's a, it's a, it's a bad thing, uh, but we we um, we can tolerate it. And there were those who said no, uh, this is not simply an economic issue this is a moral issue and we we're duty bound to to uh to prohibit it well the 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 uh those who oppose the opium trade on moral grounds won out in a debate at the Daoguang court in 1839-1840 and and a an official named Commissioner Lin Zushu was sent from he'd been a very successful provincial governor in China was sent from Beijing down to uh, Canton um, as a as a representative of this uh, moral um, moral political school uh, Commissioner Lin Zushu. Uh, prohibited opium trade in Canton and seized all the stocks uh, of opium trade that had been seized all the stocks of opium uh, that had accumulated around Canton and ultimately ultimately burned them. Uh, this act uh, was taken by the British as a or um, uh, taken certain segments of the British population as an act of war, and a, a British fleet was was sent out um, to to China um, to uh, uh, punish Commissioner Lin and uh, reestablished the free flow of opium, um, so that there was, as I say, there was debate. Now, I've said there was debate within China what to do about the opium trade. There was also debate within England. There are those in, Eng- in the English Parliament who said, uh, who, who recognized the uh, moral character of the opium trade and felt that uh, Britain had no place using its armies uh, to enforce, to enforce, but the but, but as I say, the the merchant party in England uh, won out, just as the moralists in China had won out, and that really is the beginning of the Opium War. Hmm. So let's talk about the Opium War because it would be a devastating defeat, and it of course of course would result in the Treaty of Nanking and the loss of Hong Kong from China it would be a British province all the way up to nineteen ninety seven. Yeah. Well, the uh, uh, I think it is 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 fairly well known 
when the British fleets arrived in China, um, it became clear uh, fairly early on that um, their weaponry was better, their ships were stronger, uh, and their um, they they would prevail in any battle uh, between China and the West. Um, so that the uh, if you think about the Opium War, there were really rather few battles. Um, there were some action around Canton and some action up in Zhejiang province. There were not, but but, but it was not a major war with campaigning. Uh, both sides recognized that the, the British had the superior power and the issue became one of how to negotiate a successful uh, result. And the, uh, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware, uh, the um, Opium War settlement uh, was was quite interesting. It initially uh, permitted free trade and and diplomatic representation for the British in five cities along the China coast. This, these were the terms of the Nanjing uh, Treaty. There'd be free trade in five cities along the China coast, and again diplomatic uh, diplomatic representation. Um, the it's interesting that the Nanjing settlement said almost nothing about opium. Hmm. Uh, it, it was the the result was expressed strictly in terms of of free trade, um, and in fact, opium trade continued on the coast and, and in the hmm. in the five cities. But there were there was no provision in the in the Nanjing Treaty about opium. It was implied between the lines. Yes, it was all implied between the lines, and in in the in the course of negotiations, uh, there is some research suggesting that the Chinese negotiators didn't fully inform the Manchu Emperor what they had of what they had committed to. And similarly, at various points in the negotiations, the uh, British uh, uh, felt that their negotiators had been uh, had been undermined. Uh, there's there's the one very famous line about uh, Elliot, who was a negotiator uh, for the British in the early stages of the war. I'm sorry, but I think your phone hand might be in front of the microphone. There we go. Okay. There uh, we go. When the British first heard that the Chinese had ceded Hong Kong, they said, we sent Captain Elliot out to secure free trade, and all he has done is win a barren, uh, waterless island uh, of no value off the China coast. Um, now, their attitude toward that changed over the next century, but still, uh, the negotiation was a long process uh, that 
a long and complicated process. And there were, in fact, uh, we often talk about two opium wars or the opium war in two stages and various various settlements were found and various settlements were achieved and then found to be uh, unacceptable until finally the British and French um, in the uh, 1860s in, invaded uh, North China and, and, and took the city of Beijing and forced the Manchu emperors to flee to Manchuria. Hmm. They came back, but still, uh, uh, it was a, the burning. So, of course, quite, quite quickly, sorry, sorry, your sound is a little bit out. Sorry, about five seconds, just. Okay. So, yeah, the open war, of course, was a great failure for uh, the Chinese, and it's a great victory for the British. But that's something that happened fairly quickly after the Taiping, uh, sorry, after the open war would be the Taiping Rebellion, and... Let's, so let's talk about the Taiping Rebellion in the 1850s. Okay. Well, the, um, first of all, to put the uh, Taiping Rebellion in some context, from the end of the 18th century down to the middle of the 19th century, there was increasing uh, violence in the Chinese countryside. Uh, uh, population pressure uh, was straining against the Chinese resources, and there were rebellions of one form or another uh, beginning in the, let's say, 17, 1770s and going down to 1850. The Taiping was distinguished so that uh, the idea that groups were dissatisfied with the Qing was not was not at all unprecedented. What was unusual about the Taiping uh, were that they were they had a, a remarkable uh, ideology. Um, they had uh, gotten some portions of the Christian faith. Uh, through missionary efforts in China. And the Taipings uh, adopted these elements of the, the, the Christian faith. And one of the differences is, of course, you have in the, in the, in the, in the old biblical Old Testament, you have many visions of an angry God uh, anxious to destroy anxious to destroy the the peoples that he had created. And the the Taipings picked up on this vision of an angry god. And uh, the Chinese had always had had always had some vision of tin or heaven, which could uh, at the extremes intervene in human affairs. This is the the well-known expression, the mandate of heaven has changed. The Chinese always had that notion, but heaven was never as angry 
or as direct or as forceful uh, as as the Christian God, and so that the the typings really found a new weapon um, to use against the Chinese state, which was far a new ideological weapon uh, to use against the Chinese state. The typings came from a minority. Were, were, the early Taiping leaders were a minority group in China who had been discriminated against and had, um, well, they had mixed mixed success, but they they'd also experienced considerable discrimination. They were angry against their environment, and they picked up this image of an angry god. And then, as they began to march north, various other groups. Who had many grievances against the Chinese state joined them, so they, their army grew uh, just very, very rapidly. Now, not all of the new converts uh, bought the angry god notion, uh, bought all the, and you know the the leader of the Taiping imagined himself the younger brother of Jesus Christ. Um, not all of the, not all of those who um, joined the Taiping movement were necessarily uh, accepted this 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 new um, ideology of rebellion, but because there were many grievances in the Chinese state, the Taiping movement grew very rapidly as it marched north, and eventually was able to take. The, the city of Nanjing, um, where they held, held out, established a, a rebel organization and held out for uh, 10 years. Mm. Um, the Chinese um, response uh, to the Taiping was uh, organized by a man named Zhang Wofan. Yeah. Zung uh, really took the idea that um, we Chinese need to set aside all of our differences now and concentrate on uh, resisting the Taiping. And he gradually built up an army. Uh, he, he led the army against Nanjing. Uh, and finally was able to defeat the Taiping. But in the process of doing that, really, one can almost say that Zhuge Fan created a new uh, 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 notion because before the 19th century, this term we use today, Confucianism, would probably not have, was not, Terribly widely used in China, there were there were various schools of thought, um, some uh, supported by the state, some others, some others unorthodox in various degrees. But the idea that they all uh, constituted one big brand called Confucianism uh, was not perhaps as strong strongly felt. Uh, before the Taiping, 
as after it was in some ways it was a creation of of the Buffon and his desire to um, create a uh, an ideology to resist the Taiping. Mm. Of course, the Taiping was an enormously uh, bloody affair. Um, millions of people were killed, and it was a a, a major break in the. It was a major break in the in the um, in, in the Qing Dynasty's rule of China. Hmm. Of course, someone I've been looking forward to talking about. I would say I think one of the most famous sovereigns of China, of late, of late Imperial Qing China, and that is of course Dou. The, what she would become known as the Dowager Empress. The Dowager Empress, yes. And I've been rather looking forward to talk about her. And, and so let's talk about the rise of Xi, because she is, it's rather quite a fascinating story. And she would, I would say, compare her to Queen Victoria, because she would rule for half a century. Uh, yes. And more, if not more, in Qing China for the next half century until almost the fall of the Qing Empire. Yes. What is amazing to me is that after having one of the largest rebellions in world history and the defeat of the Opium War, the Qing did not fall in the 1860s, but then survived for another half century. Hmm. How was that possible? Well, um, the Dowager Emperor is, of course, a very... There are many (laughs) comments about her, many observations. Um, But one. Perhaps one of the most famous books about her is by Yung Chang, who wrote a recent biography. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I have not read that volume, but it's always struck me that in outline, what the Dowager, what what occurred, first of all, uh, dowager emperors were not absolutely unprecedented, but very rare in Chinese tradition. There had been several of them, but not not many by any means. And so the legitimacy of the dowager emperor empress was uh, was problematic from the beginning. What she did was to make allies of the people who had. Uh, defeated the Taiping Rebellion. She made allies of them, and she ruled through them. Now, in, something, I'm sorry again to interrupt you, but we should also mention that, well, of course, she was a concubine, began the concubine of the emperor, and then when yeah. he died, what was common in Chinese tradition was that when an empress became... No, a dowager, she would never have sex again with sexual relations with any man yeah. again. So that so we should mention as well the, tradi- the Chinese tradition in this. Well, yeah, and I'm not one. I'm not an expert uh, on the Empress Dowager's sex life by any means. Um, <laughs> she, uh, uh, but she did. Um. The inter- the interesting 
at least my perspective here, is that she created really a, a, a qualitatively different sort of Qing government for these last 50 years, where she relied very heavily on the uh, men who would put down the Taiping Rebellion uh, to govern China. Um, whether one book sees the Empress Dowager's reign as the last stand of Chinese conservatism. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I, I would incline to see her as experimenting with new styles of rule. Um, and because the, the men who had put down the Taiping Rebellion became very interested in uh, Western styles of rule and Western weapons of war. And so they began a process that was called self-strengthening uh, that the Empress Dowager sponsored a process of trying to build up the uh, Chinese armies, uh, trying to develop Chinese economies, uh, trying to adopt modern technologies of production and, and warfare. Um, and this self-strengthening uh, became a, the sort of dominant uh, theme of Chinese rule uh, from the 1860s into the 1890s mm. and was really a very different kind of Qing government than you had seen before uh, mm. before the Empress Dowager came to power. Mm. Now in the 1888, I'm, I'm so do forgive me for jumping a little bit in time, but in 1888, of course, the Japan had been an isolated yes. power at the time became would become, of course, for the next cent half century, a dominant power in Asian yeah. history. And I believe the Meiji dynasty was at the time rising yes. power as well, and they would, of course, wage their first uh, was the first war against China. So how did that? But let's talk about the Chinese Japanese war. Well, the Sino-Japanese War was probably the one of the mo most significant episodes in China's 19th century history because it, it effectively brought to an end the policy of self-strengthening. Um, yeah. And it, it, the one of the main uh, self-strengtheners uh, in fact, was injured during the Sino-Japanese War, and it a man named Li Hongzhong, and it marked the end of his active life, active political life. But the vision uh, throughout China was that self-strengthening had failed. We had lost to what had been a previous tributary state. Self-strengthening had failed, and with that, the notion was that the Qing Dynasty had failed, um, which became very widespread uh, from the 1890s into the first uh, into the first decade into the first decade of the 20th century. So the domestic impact of the war, Sino-Japanese War, was just huge. Uh, one famous intellectual, Liang Jichao, said, "Our nation." will be cut up like a melon um, into little pieces. 
because after the Sino-Japanese War, uh, the Western powers, including Japan, um, began to carve out spheres of influence, kind of proto-colonies throughout China. So they're really... um, The Sino-Japanese War was, in a sense, the end in one sense, the end of Qing rule, there were another 10 years in which the Qing tried to, or the Empress Dowager, her advisors, uh, tried to significantly restructure Qing administration, but these efforts were were ultimately unsuccessful. So I I really count the Sino-Japanese War as close to the end as the end in fact, of of Qing rule in China. Now, something else that I wanted to talk about that the Dowager Empress tried to do, and we talked about that the Chinese did not, and Qing did not really want the Western technology, but that what I seem to understand that Qi does is that she tried to make build railroads and she tried to, you know, modernize the country with telegrams, and of course, this would eventually lead the Boxer Rebellion as well, but because most people seem to be opposed to railroads and to modern technology in Qing China. Well, yeah, the um, certainly the the Boxer Rebellion, uh, but the I'm, I wouldn't have thought necessarily of railroads, but the Boxer Rebellion started. Uh, around a, a German colony that was set up in Shandong, uh, in the area of Qingdao. And this name may be familiar to you today because what the Germans do in their colony, they brewed beer. And so today we have Qingdao mm-hmm. beer from China. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, the, hostility between the Germans and the local Shantung peasantry was what first created uh, the Boxer armies. And the Empress Dowager didn't know quite what to do with the Boxer armies. They were, um, they were potentially at least uh, a weapon she could use against Westerners, against foreigners because after all, they began as an anti-foreign force. Um, but they also were, in certain, res- in certain respects, a- anti-Chinese. Um, so she didn't act against them. And of course, the Boxer armies marched uh, from Shantung to Beijing, laid siege to the foreign legations there, and... Uh, once again, the uh, the court fled, um, and the, the boxers laid siege to the the foreign legations, and one can see um, the the Embers uh, uh, Dowager's miscalculation of what she could do. Uh, a miscalculation in the boxer episode was enormously uh, costly. Uh, the treaty, the Boxer Indemnity, uh, would have taken up all of the excess revenue of the Qing government 
um, until 1945, if it had, if it had been ever been fully paid off, um, so that it was an extremely costly mistake um, for the uh, Empress Dowager to make. But I think it's important to realize that the boxers were both anti-foreign and anti anti-Chinese. Hmm. Now let's or, or anti-Chin. Hmm. Now let's uh, begin with of course the death, death of Andorraj and Percy and of course what would be the end in nineteen twelve of the Qing dynasty and Emperor Pu and his Pui and his brief reign. <laughs> well, Pui is always a good story. There's the the movie that the the movie that's made about him, the Last Emperor. Um, he was in fact an infant when the Empress Dowager died. Um, shortly thereafter, um, there were a series of uh, political. There was a a small political rebellion in the, the central city of central China city of Wuhan, and gradually, uh, of course, one of the uh, the Qing innovations in the first decade of the twentieth century was the creation of provincial assemblies. And so, what happened? The the um, in October of 1911 uh, this military rebellion at a garrison in central China was able to hold out against the Qing armies for uh, several weeks and the Chinese newly assembled in their provincial assemblies the provincial assemblies uh, simply began to secede from the dynasty there was no uh, provision, of course, that they could succeed. Uh, provinces were meant as units of control, not as units of popular sovereignty. Um, but they did succeed. And by 1912, enough of the provinces had, quote, seceded, end quote, uh, that the uh, um, the advisors of Pui uh, abdicated on behalf of the emperor and a new uh, ruler was set up in Beijing and as you probably know from the story though the emperor continued to live within the forbidden city for a number of years uh, surrounded by the eunuchs who had, had brought him up and sort of unaware of what was going on in the in the rest of the Chinese Empire, ultimately, and he, he lived for a while after he was um, made to leave the Forbidden City. He lived for a while in the city of Tianjin, and then ultimately, during the Sino-Japanese War, he set up a, or he was the leader of a puppet regime in a state that the Japanese created in Manchuria called Manchu War. Manchu War was simply the Manchu state, and the Manchu emperor was head. They took Pui and made him head of the Manchu state. 
and he was, um, as I say, it was a puppet state of the Japanese during the during the Second World War. Mm. Now, it's important about in the beginning how people the rural, uh, sorry, rural population changed from the Ming to the Qing Dynasty, but was there any was it the same kind of from going from Qing to the Ming? So from the Ming to the Qing as going from the Qing to the Chinese Republic, or was there not much different at all in China as a whole? Um, uh, that, that, that is a very difficult question. And I'm sorry, there was a failure in the technology here. That's fine, don't um, worry. Yeah, the um, that's that that's a very difficult question. Certainly, uh, life changed in China. Uh, I think much more uh, in in the turn of the twentieth century uh, than it had from Ming to Qing, but whether. The fall of the Qing was responsible for these changes or not, I think is a question you can you can ask. Uh, just as uh, peasant life changed from Ming to Qing in, in part because of the warming of the climate, which the Qing had nothing to do with, uh, peasant life changed from the Qing to the Republic in the sense that uh, there were Many new, uh, uh, there there were new markets, uh, new new goods that were that came in to change Chinese life, uh, and you can, I mean, the list is the uh, the list of of new way, new new technologies, new goods. That changed Chinese life is very long. Uh, there's a there's a famous, very famous old novel called uh, "Oil, Oil to Light the Lamps of China." I think it's the name I've forgotten, which talks about a Western merchant uh, traveling from city to city in China, uh, trying to sell oil lamps, and these, of course. Uh, um, brought brought oil and the new technology into Chinese villages, but there were uh, changes in in cropping patterns in China to meet international demands. Um, there were new uh, new goods in the Chinese countryside. Uh, roads and railroads penetrated areas which had been inaccessible before, and all of these um, all of these things probably did make. Uh, I think probably peasant life changed more from the Qing to the early Republic than it had from the Ming to the Qing. But again, whether the fall of the political leadership necessarily brought about this change is a, is a question uh, is a question I think to be asked. What about international politics? You mentioned uh, what, the managing change in political form or, and the government from Qing to, to the Republic? Um, well, uh, 
China was uh, was in these years the very weak man of Asia, um, and I'm not sure that changed very much uh, from the Qing to the early Republic. I I don't think that uh, in sort of diplomatic terms, uh, China's or world power terms, China's political position uh, or position in international matters uh, changed all of that much. Um, there was a prevailing fear really well into the 20th century that China would lose would lose its economic and political sovereignty. And one can envision the 20th century in China as an attempt by a variety of means, but basically by whatever means would work to reestablish the political and economic sovereignty of the Chinese in China. Hmm. And I think without meaning to make excuses if we if we see today uh, the Chinese being rather, from our point of view, rather nationalistic, we need to remember that for the last century, the recapturing of economic and national sovereignty has been the predominant goal of the of the of the Chinese state. Hmm. And I think we don't round it up there. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before you okay. go, do you have anything you want to promote? And then where can people buy your books? And when is your new book well, coming out? Well, you can always uh, look for my books. I would note that the three, the third book, the three impeachments, uh, will is is not quote being released. I've finished it. And I'm, um, it's it's in it's in process, uh, but it, but you probably won't find it uh, to purchase for a while yet. Hmm. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. My name is Alan. This has been Modat H12. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on iTunes, please consider writing a review. That would help us out a lot. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.